All right. My name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Me an Argument, the uh, the Colin Show. Uh, so this is a little bit of an experiment, and this is really only going to work if uh, people have questions uh, for me right now. I, I did kind of offer in the uh, YouTube chat at the uh, at the end there uh, that if anyone wanted to uh, to call in and yell at me about anything that I said during that debate, uh, so I am. Very happy to do that, but guys, I have just been debating for the last two hours. Before that, I was preparing for the debate, uh, so if this is just me talking, this is going to be a very, very short one uh, because uh, I'm not going to have that much steam if, if there's no conversation going on. Uh, so uh, the debate uh, that I uh, was uh, was just doing was about economic inequality. We went through a few different possible uh, titles when we were figuring it out uh, that this guy, I'm not going to use the uh, the YouTube name that he uses, but uh, Josh, let's just say Josh, uh, that Josh uh, originally wanted to do it as a capitalism socialism debate. Now I was definitely good with that. Uh, but then he, he sort of suggested is inequality inherently bad as, uh, as the debate topic. And, and I, I agreed to it, but I was also a little leery about that because it's possible this is just me being too much of an analytic philosophy nerd and that most people wouldn't really care about that, but I started to get really hung up on what that word inherently means. <laughs> so does that mean that your sort of chain of values, the things that you care about, has to absolutely bottom out at equality? Um, you know, I, I, is that really what I want to claim? Uh, so, so what we settled on is how bad is economic inequality? In other words, how objectionable is it if you have an extremely unequal distribution of material resources in society. And of course, my view is, you know, really, really bad, right? I mean, you know, 90, uh, you know, 90 to 95% of what I do is about uh, trying to, uh, to, to sort of achieve a society uh, that's much less, uh, that's much less unequal, uh, not perfectly equal in that sort of way, like the, um, you know, the scene in, Casino, where Robert De Niro's character Aethrostein uh, storms back into the casino kitchen to ball out the chef because the the, the uh, muffins don't all have exactly as many blueberries in them. Uh, so not uh, not that kind of perfect exactly as many blueberries in every muffin equality. Uh, you know, if if we live under a you know socialist society and uh, and you know I don't know I'm still making more money from book sales than other people's books aren't as good. I'm, I don't I don't think that's unjust. Uh, but uh, that's not a society that's not savagely unequal in the way that standardly contemporary capitalist societies are, you know, where CEOs at large firms make hundreds of times the average salary of even sort of full-time workers with pensions and benefits and all that stuff, never mind the sort of conditions of all the people who are underemployed, overemployed in the gig economy, stringing together gigs without health insurance, without any sense of job security, uh, stressing out about money all the time, that I find completely unacceptable. And so I sort of tried to make that argument in the debate. But I'm doing what I said I wasn't going to do. This is me talking. Guys, call in. I want to hear it from you. All right. Antonio, what are you thinking? Well, one thing that I thought was kind of interesting, I mean, I'm trying to think exactly how to phrase this, but... Uh... <laughs> The sometimes he seemed to be arguing from a perspective of like consequentialism, whereby you, wherein you don't have a, uh, where, wherein your it's inequality is is not so bad because if everybody is getting everybody is improving their their lives, then you uh, then you know it's it's better than the alternative something something like that, and I guess that. What I'm mm -hmm. sort of wondering, I mean, this is maybe more of a, a question about mechanics, is how do you, you know, kind of go about focusing the the debater, pinning down what you're supposed to be talking about in that kind of a context without, you know, without it making it, with, without sort of, you know, allowing your opponent to just kind of uh, spend the whole time poking holes in what yeah, I, I got the same sense. I, I actually I started to raise this at one point, but it kind of got lost because uh, so much of the open discussion part of the debate 
was really about going back and forth about a couple of subjects, right? About kind of, um, you know, consumer safety regulations and, you know, whether we should have those and about uh, whether, you know, racial disparities and poverty uh, have anything to do with uh, with the history of Jim Crow and all that. Uh, and, uh, and, and those kind of ate up a lot of the time and like a little bit of like what I kind of said in the opening, especially about equality of opportunity. Uh, whereas I, I think, um, I think in his opening, my sense was that he was kind of going and, and really in, in everything he said in the debate, my sense was that Josh was kind of going back and forth between a couple of different things. And maybe these could be made consistent, but they're certainly very different. Right? So one was this idea, this sort of um, Robert knows it kind of idea that justice isn't about outcomes. It's about process. Uh, so, you know, if you have, no matter how crazy the inequalities are, right. Even if, um, you know, a lot of people at Amazon warehouses could, uh, uh, you know, like have to have second jobs and Jeff Bezos owns his own spaceship, uh, that that's all fine as long as it comes about the right way. Or if it's objectionable in our society, it's only because of, you know, corruption and crony capitalism, you know, nepotism, whatever, things like that. But as long as, you know, as long as we assume a hypothetical or at least the slightly imaginary Jeff Bezos who, who made all of his money in ways that are totally consistent with free market principles, if there was exactly as much wealth disparity between him and the workers, according to the, you know, that nozicky libertarian kind of view, um, or a certain kind of libertarian view, I should say, if there are libertarians who are consequentialists, uh, then that would be fine. Because it's it doesn't matter what pattern of distribution you end up with. This is Nozick's argument. It only matters how you got there. Um, which, you know, for the record, I, I think is crazy. I mean, it's one thing to say that the uh, that how you get there matters. It absolutely matters. Uh, but the idea that there's sort of no moral significance uh, to uh, to where you end up uh, just seems uh, just seems very very odd to me. You know, I, he was kind of pivoting back and forth between uh, you know that that sort of knows it kind of idea that all that matters is the process that led to whatever distribution of resources you have, and the very very different consequentialist idea that well all that matters is is how well you're doing. And uh, and so that could be used to defend inequality in a couple of ways. I think he was mostly just doing the first of these, but the second was maybe implied. Uh, so one of the ways it could be used to defend equality is the what he was doing, which is to say, well, look, all we should really care about is um, how people at the bottom are doing, or you know how maybe not even the people at the bottom, you know how either the people at the bottom or how people on average are doing or just how much happiness or suffering there is in the society as a whole. And it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, all we should care about is like how poor somebody is in terms of absolute purchasing power. We shouldn't care about how poor they are compared to anybody else. Um, which is the sort of thought that I think has some intuitive resonance. Like that kind of feels right in certain contexts, right? That like, um, you know, if, you know, if you're getting an A, what does it matter to you? What grade somebody else is getting, you know, in, in those sort of contexts where there really is no relationship uh, between those two things. But of course, anytime we're talking about distribution of scarce resources, this is the point that I was making to him uh, at one point in the debate, by definition, those things are links, right? If there is not an unlimited amount of resources to go around, and even if the pie is growing over time, at any given time, snapshot of that time, there's only so much to go around, uh, then, yeah, definitionally, uh, if, if some people have, have more than, uh, than there's less uh, that's, uh, that's, left, uh, that's left for others, and, but like other people can, you know, can go west and find one. Uh, it's one way that that kind of uh, reasoning can be used to defend inequality. The other way, which I think is actually a little bit more popular among the kind of libertarian or the kind of Steven Pinker type, maybe kind of neoliberal bordering on being libertarian-esque uh, person is to say, well, uh, it's okay if some people have less right now, if that's a consequence of economic arrangements that are going to make the people at the bottom better off over time. 
So the typical argument is, look, you know, look at how much better off, um, you know, people, even people living in poverty in the United States, look at how they have certain kinds of perks and luxuries that their great grandparents wouldn't have been able to imagine, whatever. And, you know, the free market did that, you know, and, and, you know, libertarians will always do this trick where they sort of pretend that everything good <laughs> about really existing capitalism is because of how close it is to free market uh, principles and everything that's bad about it is because of how much it deviates from it, which of course is a super duper empirically dubious assumption. You could argue that actually it would be impossible to have functional markets uh, in, a, in a libertarian utopia where the government wasn't intervening in the, in the economy a lot. Uh, but whatever, I, I, I think, um, you know, that second one, I think is probably the more compelling one for a lot of people that's like, okay, at least if the, if the floor is being raised over time, um, that even if the people on the floor are better off now because they are worse off right now, because there's such a gap between the floor and the ceiling, uh, and even if present resources were distributed more equally, people at the bottom would be doing better off if that gap in income, you know, that gap in access to resources is just a side effect of an economic system that's chugging along and raising the floor over time, then that is, um, then that's what matters. All that matters is, is, is that, you know, the over time capitalism will improve the lot of the people who are the worst off. Um, I think there's some really good ways of pushing back against that. Uh, like, Certainly, uh, certainly if, um, you know, you could question the premise that only capitalism will do that, right? That, uh, that you could, you, you know, presumably, you know, if, if you have some idea of how you think a reasonable socialist society could work, it's one where, you know, you don't think that technological innovation would stop, you know, you, 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 you think that, you know, that things would, you know, putting aside environmental concerns, you know, you think the, you know, economy will, you know, keep growing over time, et cetera. Uh, so, so you could just say, look, I mean, we could have, you know, whatever your sort of ideas of, you know, market socialism or Paracon or whatever, and we would still get the, you know, well, it wouldn't be the floor anymore because things would, you know, but whatever, you know, that the, uh, you know, we'd have this sort of much more equal status of everybody would still be raised over time. Uh, but then I think that another very separate way of pushing back against that is uh, is just to say, look, let's even assume for the sake of argument that it's true that uh, capitalism left to its own devices will raise the floor over time. The and you know and that you know if we if we mess with it to you know more equally distribute existing resources, that'll that'll make the floor raise more slowly or something. Uh, even if you accept that for the sake of argument, it's very unclear why that would mean that existing inequalities are totally fine, because the assumption sort of seems to be that I, I mean this you know it's a sort of dramatic way of putting it, but I think it gets to the heart of the issue. Like it's just fine to offer up the current generation of poor and working people as a human sacrifice for the sake of future progress. They're way worse off than they would be if we distributed existing resources more equally. Uh, but all that matters is that other poor people in the future are going to be doing better off because of this. And even if the premise is true, it, it seems just kind of crazy that you would think that that just went without saying that that made it all worth it. Um, you know, because even if you, you know, you want future generations to do well and, you know, to, to do better, uh, then, uh, then, you know, when that's fine. But I mean, like people who are alive right now count too. And it seems like the structure of this is, is just this really, you know, you used the word consequentialism earlier, this really like sort of unsophisticated kind of brutal kind of consequentialism, like, Hey, um, you know, we can push the fat man onto the trolley tracks and it's fine. Because all that matters is that only one guy is dying instead of the five workers, you know, repairmen on the tracks, who would have uh, who would have died earlier. You know, we could har- Yeah, or, you were saying, Antonio. No, no, just just. Uh, I was just going to make a dumb joke. I was going to say that, uh, or it's saying that it's it was it was all right to push the fat man onto the trolley tracks because there were people that were that were going to show up further down the line. <laughs>
Yeah, no, that's a good point. Right? It's not even like the classic trolley problem that you're saving the five workmen who are repairing the track right now is that you're just saying, well, look, I mean, if, you know, if, if we don't create this blockage here, then, um, you know, that it's, that it's, it's possible, you know, that, you know, that other people will, you know, will come onto the track later. And just in case that happens, right, we should really sacrifice the, uh, the fat man's interests. And I think that there are a couple of ways that sort of long-termist consequentialist free market people can try to salvage it. Um, you know, like, cause, and one of them, uh, is to say, no, 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 but you're assuming we're only talking about future generations, but actually you see, um, the sort of positive effects of faster economic growth could actually be felt even within one human lifetime that, uh, you know, that it could be that, you know, we implement these free market policies and the, and the floor is raised, you know, in you know 10 or 20 years the floor has already been raised somewhat so it's it's already paid off for people who are alive right now so see we're not discounting the interests of people who are alive now for the sake of future generations uh you know we're we're also helping people who are alive now and and i think that all i can really say about that is i just don't think that accurately describes the consequences of their views so one really clear way to think about it is um, the medical innovation argument. So a lot of times defenders of free market healthcare will say, hey, um, whatever bad consequences you, know, you might think that there are to treating healthcare as a commodity, uh, they're all balanced out by the fact uh, that, um, that, uh, that as long as you know, health insurance is a commodity and so we have this market system that has these great material incentives for innovation, you know, then we're going to get more medical innovation over time that, uh, that, you know, medical innovation would really slow down a lot. Uh, if, if there weren't any countries in the world that had market healthcare, like the United States does now, and look at how much innovation happens in the United States, as opposed to other countries that have socialized medicine. And of course, empirically, I don't think that that's true. I think that, um, you know, yeah, there is a, you know, there is a disproportionate amount of medical innovation that happens in the United States. It's mostly happening in government labs. Uh, that's, or, you know, certainly at least government funded ones, even if it's private companies who get the research grants, um, you know, that the, the National Institute for Health, you know, the NIH in the U.S. spends a lot of money on this stuff. Uh, and as, as Lee Phillips and uh, uh, Mikhail Rosworski point out in People's Republic of Walmart, uh, if you're looking at at genuinely new drugs, right? new molecular entities, rather than just old ones that are slightly tweaked so that you can, you know, slap your pharmaceutical corporate brand on it. Most of those seem to be developed in public labs, but whatever. Assume for the sake of argument that medical innovation really will happen faster if we have market health care. It's certainly not true that you're not sacrificing the interests of lots of people now for that innovation later. I mean, if some people uh, aren't going to get preventive medicine in the next 10 or 20 years, they're just going to die in the next 10 or 20 years. Right? Or, or like think about the infant mortality rates in, in countries with the socialized medicine versus in the United States. Um, you're, you know, like, you know, seems to be a difference. And I know people will make all these arguments like, no, 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 really, there are a million other factors that can account for it, blah, blah, blah. But there certainly seems to be a difference and, you know, it seems like a little much to say, yeah, no, no, ma'am, I'm so sorry that your baby died because we have this higher rate of infant mortality. But see, you know, this is going to, you know, having these market forces at play in healthcare is going to lead to innovation. And over time, uh, that'll lead to fewer other people's babies die. And so, you know, really, you can see why we need to sacrifice yours. And, you know, even outside of those extreme examples, like, you know, even if something's happening within a lifetime, right? Like if because of economic inequality and distribution of existing resources, um, you don't get to go to college, uh, you know, you uh, end up living in, in substandard housing, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, no matter how you're, uh, circumstances change. And certainly you're never going to get those 10 or 20 years back. And in any case, if we're talking about upward mobility, 
you know, a middle-aged uh, worker is a lot, a hell of a lot less likely to be upwardly mobile, even given that we have more upward mobility for these market forces uh, than somebody just coming onto the job market. Uh, so, you know, either, you know, it, it just seems, it just seems wrong as a description of their views to say that they're not sacrificing the interests of people who are alive right now in favor of this hypothetical future benefit. They're totally doing that. All right. It's also funny, uh, to your point about the medical innovation and stuff, it always cracks me up since uh, we have only the third highest uh, life expectancy in the Americas, despite being by far the wealthiest country per capita, that we lag behind Cuba. Yeah. That cracks me up that like they, they yeah. talk about like the, the horrors of socialized medicine. I mean, yeah, Cubans are not unhappy with their situation. Well, well not their medical situation. Yeah, yeah, there might they, be they, lots of other things that are unhappy they about, all, but, yeah, they're, exactly. but they're, they're certainly... They're very open about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. But they're not, they're not unhappy. You know, the, the average Cuban's complaint about life in Cuba is not that there are too many doctors. No, it's not, it's not that, yeah, the, the um, socialized, that they don't have a choice of what doctor to go to or right, right, whatever right. thing they complain about, yeah. Yeah, which, which of course, the, the choice thing always drove me crazy, you know, during the uh, the Democratic primaries. Oh, Cause, yeah. Cause this it's was the just... choice of what not to get covered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because this was just constantly brought up, right? You know, that, like, you know, the other candidates would say, oh, see, you know, Senator Sanders, you know, he wants to, to force you to be on this government plan, you know, but but I want to I wanna give you choice. Uh, and quite apart from everything else that's wrong with that, like the idea that this is the kind of choice that really matters to most people. Like, yeah, when I think about what kind of choices I want to have, what kind of freedom I want to have to sort of dictate the course of my life. Like, yeah, where is this in the list of priorities that like, no, no, no. It's very important to me that I have Aetna, not Blue Cross Blue Shield, right? I come from an Aetna family, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's not, not on the list. Like, the things that actually matter to people are like, hey, um, can I quit this job that I hate and go back to school? Or am I going to be stopped from doing that? Because I'm worried that if I do that, you know, my family won't have health insurance. I mean, yeah, that's a it's it's a very obvious th- it's well, it's it's a very it's a very effective framing of the debate, I think, to, you know, immediately ask people to stay on topic with regards to freedom of choice. And how, and just keep on harping on that, because immediately you have to question. And that was another thing I noticed when you were describing the arguments: is that they have so many implicit premises in every statement they make that are wrong. That uh, you know, appropriately, un- to appropriately like uh, address any of the points they're making, you oftentimes have to like say, "Well, so these are like five things that need to be true in order for me to e- for this to even be the question at hand." It just seems to me really hard to, you know, deal with that. I, I mean, I I definitely get your point. I mean, I guess to be fair, um, anybody who has like a very different worldview than anybody else that they're arguing with might have the same reaction that, you know, like, oh, you're assuming these 20 things in the background that are all false, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, cause, cause of course that's what it is to have a very different worldview that you think a lot of people's, you know, fundamental assumptions are, are totally wrong, you know, which is kind of one of the reason, one of the reasons that I like to lead hard into that equality of opportunity thing, because this is exactly the kind of thing that, um, that libertarians and conservatives will often say, right? Like I mean, this, it's, in a way, this actually goes with the the Nozick point about it, you know, outcomes versus processes. You know that uh, although I would argue that you can't have meaningful equality of opportunity for very long <laughs> if you have wildly unequal outcomes, because uh, and you don't redistribute because um, you know one generation's outcomes are the next generation's opportunities. But of course conservatives and libertarians always say, no, 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 the only kind of equality we care about is, is equality of opportunity, or at least typically they say that. Uh, that, um, you know, that like, I don't care about equality of outcome, I care about equality of opportunity, uh, and, which is why I think, you know, that's a way you can kind of latch on to sort of their concepts and say, well, hey, is there something I can do here? Because, 
let's think about equality of opportunity, right? Like, and, and actually, that was interesting from tonight that Josh never quite said whether he believes in some sort of principle of equality of opportunity. It seemed like no, but uh, he hedged it in an interesting way, right? Uh, but he never, you know, like I, I think the strongest point he made about this is, look, they're clearly forms of discrimination, you know, forms of, you know, of like unequal outcomes that we think are unfair, not because they're based on things that aren't under our control, but because they're based on things that we don't think should matter. Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, the religion example is a great one there or, you know, whatever. I mean, you could, you know, you go into, to, uh, to, to lots of examples, you know, if you have laws against, you know, um, you know, if you have laws against, uh, you know, against, you know, interracial marriage, you know, it, it could be that, uh, you know, it's, it's totally, you know, up to you whether you end up, you know, dating and then eventually, you know, marrying only people of your race or not. But that, but because we think it shouldn't matter, we think it's unfair to, to discriminate and handing out marriage licenses based on that. Uh, so, so I think that that's a totally fair point, but I think I never felt like I got a clear answer. I'm not sure how clear an answer I got. Let me just say that to the question of whether he believes that a thing that could make it unreasonable to have different outcomes is the fact that those different outcomes stem from factors over which uh, we don't have we don't have control. That in other words, like, okay, fine, there could be other reasons why, um, you know, inequalities could be unjust. In fact, I listed off a bunch of them in the opening, but uh, do you at least acknowledge that a reason why, a good reason to object to an inequality is that it's based on something that's totally outside of, of your control? And that, that seems like a good reason why something shouldn't matter in terms of, of distribution. I would say in general, conservatives and libertarians are very likely to say and often say um, that, uh, you know, they don't care about equality of outcome. Even, even yeah. there, though, it's, it's very strange to me because how could anybody who believes in equality of opportunity at any level really uh, support thing or oppose things like, uh, you know, free universal free college uh yeah universal free college is a perfect example <laughs> it's like you know, you're, yeah. you're clearly you know if you want to give everybody a shot and then whatever they can squander their shot right i mean they're certainly going to have a much better shot if they uh if they're, they're not <laughs> deprived of the ability to go to college and then some professional school you know because yeah that seems it seems ridiculous that you would that that you would decide that 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 immutable characteristic that has nothing to do with merit is allowed. I mean, like the one time I've really had gotten into it with libertarian friends, you know, it's it's a, he actually usually led me down a path a path of like some weird belief, like a belief in intergenerational merit or something like that. Though also that would also take me to the belief, like you know, I, I don't know how anybody can really justify um, from like you know. Uh, you know, from a justice perspective, the idea that uh, inheritance is a uh, is a yeah, no, for sure. Um, and and look, we know inter intergenerational merit is bullshit because, like, uh, <laughs> every prominent case of 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 uh, of some um, you know somebody from from some family. Uh, where the, uh, you know, like the father, you know, is like a super successful politician or real estate magnate or whatever, you know, the, the kids are always just worthless little shits, right? Like that, that's, that's like a, that's, that's a, that's like a law of nature, you know, that like, uh, you know, you have, uh, you know, the, the difference between, you know, the difference between the, uh, uh, you know, between Bill Clinton and Chelsea Clinton or, you know, George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, you know, the, I mean, it's fiction, but I think the family in succession is a pretty good, you know, example. Well, George H.W. Bush was also a ruthless little shit because he was the son of another person who was the son of another rich person who was the son of another rich person. And oh, he no, just for, to New Heights. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Although I think, um, you know, I think uh, I think George George W. Bush was probably more of one than George H. W. Bush. He was probably more of one than Prescott Bush. Oh, I mean, uh, yeah, he uh, George W. Bush was definitely you know 
he's definitely got more to answer for. Well, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's certainly much worse in terms of his impact on the world, but also like just as like you know, forget that for a second. Just on a sort of level of totally amoral evaluation of impressiveness, right? Like, uh, you know, the way we might say that, like Hitler or Genghis Khan, were very impressive people. We don't like the things they did, you know. But, uh, you know, but they, but uh, you know, it, 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 it's it's some from some bizarre amoral perspective, you can kind of see it's like, oh well, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, from from that standpoint, you could say like Fred Trump and Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And then, like, and then, my God, I mean, you know, Donald Trump to to like Eric and oh Don my Jr. God, yeah, because like, yeah, yeah. he makes uh, they make him look like a truly self made man. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Like, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, Donald is very far from from being a self made man. You know, like, like, you know, he, um, you know, he was. Um, you know, he was born, you know, into, uh, you know, he was born into wealth. And there's always the thing that people say about like, oh, if he just like, um, you know, put, uh, you know, kind of stuck his, uh, you know, his inheritance into, um, you know, an index fund or whatever, and like just never touched it, he'd, you know, he'd make more today. It's like, yeah, I don't know, maybe like that, that's, I mean, that might be true, but I, I think the conclusion from it is probably a little much like, you know deeply horrible human being but like look is is he and you know i mean at the very least um the idea and it's actually always been very weird to me that liberals are so invested in saying that he's not a good businessman you know it's like i mean who cares right you know uh you know but like yeah i don't know i mean he's a you know he's something of a striver you know and like there there are you know successes and failures in, in his life and even if some of the successes have a lot to do with you know corruption and uh you know, criminality or whatever, you know, like there's a sense which would say like Tony Soprano is an impressive person in a way that AJ is not. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's an even better fictional one, The Succession, which I was just watching. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where are you? Uh, the beginning of the third season. Uh, we we hadn't watched it in a while, so we uh, rewatched the second season over the last few months. After our son goes to bed, we always watch it um, for about an hour or so as yeah, as we... nice. Yeah, third season's really good. I, I I won't spoil anything, but the uh, the way uh, the way it ends, I liked a lot. Um, but but yeah, I mean, like all you know, right? Uh, you know, there's some of those people, you know, have various skills, but uh, you know, but none of them could do what Logan did. And uh, and yeah, I mean, like whatever you want to say about the 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 Fred Trump Donald Trump distinction. Like, yeah, I mean, Eric and Don Jr., you know, like you are like just barely above, you know, the level where, you know, all there is to do is to, you know, is to like, you know, jangle keys in front of them to amuse them. Like it, it's had, uh, if there was some sort of scenario, uh, you know, like that Sasha Baron Cohen movie where, you know, he's like the Gaddafi figure, but, you know, he... You know, but he's, uh, you know, becomes like just a random anonymous person. If there was some scenario like that that happened to one of those people, they would like starve to death. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, it's kind of a weird position for me, but the the Donald Trump, I think he's an incredibly effective uh, medium, like marketer. He's Yeah, for sure. He's got some incredible talent there that like when you see Don Jr. Don Jr. try to emulate it, it's <laughs> it's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean for sure. I mean, look, I, I think, you know, Donald Trump um as 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 strange and childlike as certain aspects of the way that his mind works seem to be, at least judging by his his Twitter feed over the years. Um which, by the way, I, I still think that that's a. I'm still with Will Medicker's position. I think he said this on Chapa once that uh, I, I still concur with it. That you know Donald Trump is such a legendary poster that like it. There's yeah. No re- there's no reason to deny us all the entertainment of him being on Twitter. Like like maybe he should be in jail, but he should still be allowed to post <laughs> from there. As as bizarre. Uh, as as the workings of a lot of his thoughts that he would just spill out onto Twitter all the time were, um, he clearly had some, like, well, okay, first of all, um, I think it's ridiculous when people try to deny this. He's very funny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is funny. 
I, I mean, he's an he's an immensely talented like insult comic, and you know, and, and, and I think you you should just grant that. Uh, I remember actually one of the very first conversations I ever had with Michael Brooks was about that. And we both, we both admitted that we, that we were amused by Trump, uh, as, as a, you know, insult comic, uh, you know, like the way he like tore through the uh, Republican field in 2016, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, like just, 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 just eviscerated, you know, Jeb and Rubio and all those, all those other people, uh, it was was a wonderful thing to behold. I um, mean, even if it had a horrific uh, consequence, but also I think he does have a real, like I, I don't know how much of it is just kind of visceral or whatever, but I think he does have some very good, like political instincts, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean the way he the way he balanced, uh, like you know, he knew how to. He knew that he knew that the whole Tea Party philosophy of like the, the stated philosophy was not what the base believed. With the, uh-huh. the, like he was willing to he was willing to just sort of sound a little bit like anti anti corporate anti capital and how to you know cozy up to Bernie after he was his loss was a foregone conclusion. Like I that was that was extremely well played. I think. yeah yeah no exactly like I I think yeah. he's I mean look there's a reason why. Like the entire Republican Party has 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 just been, I mean, not in policy terms. I mean, policy terms, they believe what they've always believed, you know. But uh, there's no like, way to follow Trump on policy terms. He doesn't care. He's like, yeah, he's yeah, very yeah. good at just like getting where he needs to go. I mean, like nobody else really cares about policy. Policy terms, I don't think the Republicans have really shifted on on anything. I mean, obviously, this is a big theme of mine. I, I rant about it all the time that like. You know, they they talk like, you know, populists and, you know, say they're anti-corporate for the little guy or whatever. But like, you know, they they don't even, you know, they don't even support like giving everybody health care. They don't even support higher minimum wage. It's ridiculous. But that said, the fact that rhetorically, at least, uh, and and in terms of signaling and, and, and like, in so many ways, the man has just completely remade one of the two political parties in his image. Oh, yeah, I mean, like that's just—I mean, that's just the Trump party now. Oh, it's completely the—they they absolutely are all doing their impressions of him. I mean, they, there's like very few of them that actually get it right. And when you see somebody like Josh Hawley try to do it, it's just kind of funny because, or especially somebody like you know, um, like Ted Cruz or well, like Charlie Kirk, who's not like a member, not an elected official, mm-hmm. but. His former, like you know, te- like you know, strong commitment to like you know to Milton Friedman. <laughs> and now he's like you know making noise about being a populist and saying words like oligarchy and externality without looking them up, which I thought in the debate with you was even funnier than his answer to the Euphifro uh, yeah. dilemma. Which yeah, I I told uh, yeah, it's it's become a bit of a you know, it's made it impossible for me to hear about that. <laughs> You're about the either without just thinking about him because it was such a brilliantly stupid answer. Yeah, because especially just because he had just that incredible self assurance, like it just popped out of his mouth like nothing. Oh, both. Yeah, I mean it, it's the it's the answer of uh, you've probably had students like this. I mean, I think anybody who's taught has had students like this who uh, think that they can, like you know, they can manipulate concepts they don't at all understand and just like work intellectually in that realm where you'll introduce like two very advanced concepts and they'll synthesize them and ask in a way that to them sounds like you know it would be the brilliant sort of like insight no one else would have but it's it just it just doesn't make any sense yeah 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 no for sure i mean there i think there is definitely a, a recognizable type of extremely confident undergraduate student who um who that you know that that exchange uh, resembled, but yeah, totally. Like the fact that yeah, he'll use these words like oligarchy and everything, and it's so telling that like yeah, he used to be this hardcore Tea Party guy, and then he just like seamlessly shifted into like oh now I'm a you know anti corporate populist Republican, and in that whole process he didn't have to change his mind about anything. It's, it's like uh, changing your face, like a status on your Facebook profile. Yeah, it's like yeah. Now yeah. I'm a populist. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, 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 right. Exactly. It's like yeah, the uh, you know 
that I remember, right? You know, right. The is it a committed relationship, right? You know, the uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. To a lot of people, that was also highly subjective. <laughs> no, for for sure. I mean, it's like I remember a. Um, I remember reading. Well, whatever is is this like theistic philosopher said it doesn't really matter who, but the uh, uh, I, I remember um, you know reading this essay by this guy where he's describing the sort of evolution of his religious views over time, and he was like, "Yeah, I was raised as a Unitarian, and then became became an atheist." And the good thing about that is you don't actually have to change any of your you know you don't have to change, <laughs> change your mind about anything in that process. And it's like, yeah, it's like the same thing, you know. It's like the uh, uh, for, for, for Charlie Kirk, you know, going from, uh, from tea party or to, uh, to, to anti-corporate populist, uh, conservative. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's completely superficial and ridiculous on a policy level, but like rhetorically, the fact that, you know, the Republican party has become so like, I mean, I don't know. I just think about like, I'm going to go, I'm going to work very hard not to out anybody here, but I think about members of my extended family, uh, who, who, who are, you know, on, on that side politically. And, um, you know, I can think of some of the very same people who would like late 2015, you try to talk to them about Trump and, you know, they'd be like, look, that guy's not a real Republican. He's just a clown. Why are you talking about Trump? You know? And, and then like now they've spent like the last, you know, ardently defending everything that he's ever done. Yeah, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to, I have people in my extended family as well. Not so extended, but. Yeah, yeah, um. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Like, and, and, and they all, you know, they all talk like this. It's so rare, you know, it's, I mean, like basically outside, if you're like ridiculously marginal, you know, David French, you know, uh, you know, whatever, um, the, uh, you know, Brett Stevens types, uh, who I don't even know about Brett Stevens, but whatever, like they're like a handful of people like this, right. You know, uh, David Brooks, like outside of like those kinds of figures, you know, you're, you're sort of like the last 12 never Trump Republicans in the world. Uh, you know, they all, you know, like, like it, it's just, you know, you have this, this constant, you know, you have to show your loyalty to Trump. You have to, uh, uh, you know, you have to like sort of bend the way you talk about politics to at least rhetorically resemble the way that, you know, that Trump talks about politics. Like, um, you know, I mean, whatever, like we were talking about the sort of grassroots level with family members, but I mean, it's the, it's the same thing on up, right? I mean, like there was a, there was a point during the, um, uh, during, uh, you know, well, actually at the 2016 Republican convention, uh, Ted Cruz made a big deal about not. Oh yeah. Vote your conscience. Yeah. <laughs> I was surprised Samantha B didn't have him on as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He could have been on with Glenn Beck. Uh, yeah. Like, like he, I mean, he made this like big showy gesture of not endorsing Trump at the, uh, at the convention, uh, he, you know, he said, um, uh, you know, he said that he, um, you know, he's not in the habit of, you know, endorsing people who insult his family. Cause remember during the primary. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that part. That makes his like endorsement, like he's putting out that video of him, like doing phone banking for Trump right before the access Hollywood tape so much funnier. Yeah. Cause during the primaries, there was a point where, um, yeah, he called, yeah. Yeah, he went after his wife. Keep uh, Heidi's name out of your dirty mouth. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then, uh, and then, actually, the day that Trump crossed the delegate threshold to clinch the Republican nomination, that day, uh, Trump's uh, made a, a comment about how uh, you know Rafael Cruz, uh, Ted's Ted's father, was involved in the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 yeah, Cruz oh, like since two thousand since like late two thousand sixteen, he's been a hardcore Trump loyalist. Or like uh, yeah. you know Lindsey Graham 
Oh you know, like God. throughout like almost all the Trump administration, he had like another moment of hesitation on January 6th, but throughout almost all the Trump administration, Lindsey Graham was like Trump's most loyal attack dog. And this is somebody, Trump literally held up his phone at a rally <laughs> and read off Lindsey Graham's phone number to the entire entire crowd and somehow he was still a hardcore Trump loyalist like it's just like I this this really is like I mean okay whatever I mean this is a kind of you know a somewhat like cringy and liberal thing to say but I think it has the virtue of being true like it really is kind of like a cult well yeah I mean I think I, for some reason I just had a, a moment of like Trump doing the equivalent of the, the Margaret, Margaret Thatcher quote like what's your greatest accomplishment I had Lindsey Graham licking my boots after I doxed him. <laughs> I doxed him and he licked my boots. He licks my boots. But yeah, I, my Trump has gotten a lot worse since he left office. I, I no, do this here at his press conferences. Still, yeah, but, that was pretty good though. I liked it. Uh, yeah. 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 yeah but yeah. no, it, it, I mean, the Democrats also, uh, to, to a lesser extent, uh, coalescing around Obama and like, you know, doing the Obama impression in 2020, even though there was no policy to tie to the impression. So it just sounded like, you know, Beto O'Rourke, Cory Booker and uh, Pete Buttigieg were just copying the cadence of his voice. Yeah, no, for sure. I think uh, Buttigieg in particular spent the entire election doing an incompetent Barack Obama impression. Like, I mean, in some ways it wasn't incompetent. In some ways it was like, man, this man has spent hours and hours studying (laughs) tapes of his speeches. And, you know, he's kind of got it down pat. It's just that he can't deliver it as well. Yeah. Well, Buttigieg is is somebody who, like, yeah, I I actually had very different politics. And at the very beginning was won over to his, to, uh, to supporting him in January of 2019, in large part because I think I had, like my politics had become very sort of uh, had had absorbed this kind of def- of like a, a kind of liberal fatalism, uh, wherein uh-huh. like the I couldn't even see what Bernie Sanders was saying most of the time. I couldn't really tell the difference between him and the others. So, right. But but um, I remember the looking back on what I found compelling because then I actually around that time I started listening to independent media because they were the only ones actually discussing Buttigieg. Uh-huh. Where instead of just talking about where he'd gone to school, and they really helped. Like it, it became clear first what was wrong with him, and then what was wrong with my worldview. But um, like one of the things that I remember looking back on him is he speaks almost directly to people who have a very specific limitations on what they think is possible. Mm-hmm. Like where, like you know, it's it's a transformative and structural change, but of the vacuous bureaucratic variety of like just changing with the way we do process in a very narrow sense and like things things like uh you know the like he'd had these this weird idea for supreme court reform and but but that was also like you know uh like talking to when i actually also became less supportive when i talked to supporters of his because that was also a deeply cult-like thing yeah, I was. It was. It was weird, and like it took. It took a while to remember why I hadn't just hated him from the get go. Yeah, it's such a weird call to have. It's like somehow, uh, like the fact that somehow the the most culty, toxic Democrats on Twitter uh, were the Kamala Harris people, and it's like, yeah, that's who you chose to have a cult. <laughs> She's not cheating by having a personality. Yeah, no, exactly. Like it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a bizarre, you know, just the least charismatic people in the world. Um, and you know, whatever, like, you know, Bernie Sanders has his own sort of oddball charm, but you know, whatever, it's not about the, the personal, uh, you know, the personal charisma, you know, it's, it's, it's about the, uh, it's about the policy, right? I mean, like, um, but uh, but just the fact that, okay, so these are people who are just centrist Democrats. They're indistinguishable in policy from any other centrist Democrat. So it's like, I mean, if it's not the personality, you know, what, am I, <laughs> you know, what am I missing here, right? Like, what, yeah. you know, 
why him? Why her? You know, and, and it's it's just it's just a very very strange thing. You know, it's like it it kind of reminds me of uh, I remember uh, being uh, in uh, go back to Michael Brooks. I remember being in a uh, uh, back of like an Uber with him. We're going to a uh, was it the Laura Ashcraft uh, rally? I think uh, in um, and. Uh, And we were, um, and in the, um, you know, and, and, and we're talking about, you know, Elizabeth Warren, you know, cause, cause she was having her, her moment then. And of course, you know, look, obviously in policy terms, she's much better than these other people that we were talking about. Uh, well, but, she was at first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she got, she definitely got worse over time. She, she, uh, she tried to triangulate in a, uh, in a, in a really sketchy way on, on Medicare for all. Uh, but you know, whatever. I mean, I think you know, it's, it's I'm I'm perfectly fine with acknowledge. You know, there are lots yeah. of reasons to be very mad at Elizabeth Warren that are good reasons, but I'm perfectly happy acknowledging that you know that her her policy preferences probably are genuinely, you know, better at least as a matter of degree. You know, than, than these other people are talking about. But like the the point I remember of that conversation was just like the fact that so many like academics and and media types liked Elizabeth Warren. And it's like, okay, what's the what's the special appeal about Elizabeth Warren to you? And I know it's not the, you know, it's like what, like you just like the Bernie Sanders program, but a little bit watered down, right? I mean, like, what, what's the, you know, what's the thing? And it's like, well, a lot of the appeal is that she reminds them of themselves. That, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, we like, all lie to get into to get our academic jobs. <laughs> Sorry, well, maybe, you know, maybe not I that didn't part. Really but... Care about that that much, but I did think it was funny how much she cared about it. And yeah, her that... supporters. I, I I got called racist by a bunch of them for <sighs> for poking fun of her. But anyways, but yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, no comment. But yeah. uh, but you know, putting aside the uh, putting aside that. Uh, that issue, uh, I, I think that it's it's just un um, like I think just the fact that she managed to project this aura of being this kind of very earnest professional type who is like really going to do her homework. Like the fact that she called those like five page medium posts plans, right? Like oh, she yeah. put out a plan, you know, and it's like whatever. This is it's. Dude, this is just a blog post, right? Like, uh, but uh, but the fact that she used that branding, right? That's like, oh no, no, she does, you know, she has, you know, she has these plans, you know, that like I think like really appealed to a certain kind of professional managerial class meritocrat. And and the problem yeah. is, and like, and I think that like probably some of the Kamala Harris and, and Pete Buttigieg appeal, you know, with much worse politics is similar. Uh but um you know, the problem is, yeah, right. These people remind you of yourself. The problem is they also remind everybody else of you. <laughs> yeah. And there's a reason we're not like, uh, yeah, outing myself as well, definitely somebody who's in academic circles, though. Like, yeah, just there's a reason we're not very popular. No, exactly. Right. Like, uh, you know, that, yeah. like most people don't say, oh, that person reminds me of, of a heart, you know, of of a junior professor whose 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 tenure application files really in order, uh, <laughs> man, I yeah. I you know I want to be I want to follow that person to the gates of hell, right? Like that's not you know that's not the typical human reaction to to that stuff. Like you know, God, yeah, yeah, it really is. Well, there's also uh, I think uh, sorry, David Griskin talked a lot about this: the difference between sympathy and solidarity. And I think like mm-hmm. the difference between Warren and and uh and sanders was a hundred percent that where like sanders was about empowering the people but warren was about being like a benevolent a benevolent overlord yeah yeah i mean i think that i think there probably is something to that you know that like that there's there's a kind of um you know there's that there's a appeal that's based on being in this better class position. And there's this sense, even if some of the policy details are actually similar, but there's this much greater sense of sort of technocratically guiding the ship 
in the right directions and see this will really benefit all the ordinary people, right? You know, that the, uh, that like, I have a plan and, you know, my plan will, will help you. I'm, I'm serious about, you know, serious about this policy details. Uh, whereas, uh, I, I think that if, um, you know, with Sanders, there was at least, and I, I don't want to exaggerate too much. I think a lot of these are matters of degree. Uh, but uh, but with Sanders, I think that there was a uh, an extent, at least, uh, to which you know he was really emphasizing, um, you know, the idea, yeah, of in the Griscom distinction of of uh, solidarity of uh, that like, uh, you know, not me, us, you know, that uh, that like the original meaning of that phrase, political revolution, before it just sort of. There was some semantic drift, and, orig- and eventually it just kind of meant like, you know, the Bernie movement or something like that, right? But like, um, but you know, the original meaning when he first started using that phrase was was the idea that we're you know it's not enough to elect me that in order to um, in order to achieve this political platform we're going to have to have this unprecedented level of, of grassroots mobilization in order to shake up. Uh, existing, existing power structures and 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 sort of pressure them into yeah. uh, you know into granting this program. I mean that was his plan for that. I mean it was to just yeah yeah pressure it from the outside, which is a much more realistic plan than like you know. It reminded me of like I don't know if you play much chess. Uh yeah, not a little bit. I mean I kind of I th- I think um, you know I. Uh, yeah, I'll go through phases where I, where I play a little bit more and I'll go through phases where like, I like play my brother once a year and I'm like, oh shit, I really need to do this more. But, uh, what were you going to say? Oh, well, no, just that like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, not a, you know, expert or master or anything, but I do remember there was, uh, there's this conception of what a chess master does and there's what an actual chess master does. And the conception is usually this idea of being 10 moves ahead. But if you have a plan that requires your opponent to react in specific ways and it's going to go for 10 moves, then unless yeah, you're right. literally like Magnus Carlsen, it's a really stupid plan. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like if, if yeah, if they have other choices, but you're, you're counting on it, which I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, that like a weird Elizabeth Warren healthcare triangulation, like if you took that seriously and, and I don't, right. I mean, I just, I no, just take it. Yeah. 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 I mean I I mean I always just took that as her way of trying to split the difference uh with like the the Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris kind of people, you know, the Medicare for all who want it people because they would like the first stage and the second one's far away, so you're not going to think about that too much. Uh and and then like the Sanders people have like a bone from the fact that you do theoretically say down the line you're gonna do this other thing. But like if you took it seriously, like no no no, this is really a plan. It's like a two part plan that we're gonna have this huge healthcare reform, much bigger than Obamacare, in order to get, you know, the uh public option and then as more people get on it and the health insurance industry is weakened, blah, blah, blah. You know, in like two years, <laughs> right at the at like the end of the term, you know, we're going to have this huge push for Medicare for all, and it's like, man, if that was if, if that was earnest, that's fucking stupid because like, <laughs> yeah. like, 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 really, like you're going to just like you're that confident about what's going to happen at that time. I mean, it's like uh, what's the stupid old joke, right? The guy uh, who. Um, you know the king is 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 going to uh uh is going to have him killed and and he manages to get a stay of execution you know he says uh uh that he he'll be you know the king agrees that he that he'll uh postpone the uh execution for a year and if at the end of that year he's taught the horse how to sing uh then uh then he'll uh that he won't execute him at all and he's he's telling this to like what was it like his rabbi or something and the rabbi says what's the but what's the point of that, right? I mean, the horses are going to learn how to sing. It's like, look, it's a year. Anything could happen in a year, right? Like, <laughs> I could die. The king could die. God knows. The horse will learn how to sing. You know, like uh, it's like, yeah, this this idea that you can just confidently predict everything that's going to happen politically over the course of years in between the two phases of this stuff. Never mind. You're gonna like think about how big a fight Obamacare was. That you're gonna do this twice within one term. 
Uh, I mean, it, if she seriously believed that, you know, that doesn't that doesn't speak well of her. But uh, all right, guys, as much as I enjoy uh, trashing uh, all of the Debs, uh, you know, I, I think I probably should hang it up for tonight. But this was great. I really enjoyed this. Uh, this is exactly the kind of thing that I wanted for uh, for for doing the show. Uh, so um, thank you, Antonio. Thank you all for listening. Left is best. <laughs>